The Bible's King David has the wonderful distinction of being described as a man after God's own heart. Have you ever known anybody like that? In my lifetime, I've known some choice servants of the Almighty who have pursued God with all their hearts. And I certainly include women. Are you a woman after God's own heart? Are you a man after God's own heart? The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. I'm Christine Darg. A woman of God eagerly does the work that God has assigned to her. And if she's an older woman, she's to set an example for the younger women in conduct and deportment. A woman of God approaches God with a grateful heart and casts all of her anxieties on Him because she's learned to trust in God's ability and His love. And so she brings her worship and her concerns to His throne of grace boldly and daily. I believe the best description of a woman of God is found in the Proverbs chapter 31 woman, where she is called in Hebrew an Eshet Hayel. Eshet is the construct form of Isha, the Hebrew word for a woman or a wife. And the adjective Hayel in the Bible denotes, and I love this, bravery, courage, and strength as in a valiant warrior, as in a female soldier who is capable and triumphant. Isn't that rich? She is a lioness. Now the adjective hayel is also used in some Bible verses to connote wealth. Thus the Lord's eshet hayel, the Lord's woman of valor, is a treasure in God's sight far above rubies. Traditionally, the Woman of Valor passage from Proverbs 31 is recited by husbands at the beginning of the Friday evening meal after the Shabbat candles are lit, and the wife is praised for her excellence in front of her children, and the children are also blessed. I believe the corporate bride of Messiah is the ultimate Eshet Hayel, whom the Lord is seeking in this hour. And in her tongue is the law of kindness. She, the body of Messiah, is brave, noble, honorable, modest, chaste, resourceful, and faithful. She has a sense of adventure and humor because that chapter says she laughs the laugh of faith. And Proverbs 31.18 testifies, her lamp does not go out at night. She's watching for her coming king. Now, in defining a woman of God, let's look at what the Bible says about men of God. Since, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female in Messiah, for we are all one in the Lord. The commentaries say Paul's egalitarian scripture in the book of Galatians proves that all believers are, in the fullest sense, sons of God, children of God. There are no exceptions and no inequalities. All believers alike, no matter what our race, our status, or gender, male or female, 
we stand on the same equal footing of adoption and sonship before God. What's true of one believer is true of all. But from time to time, because of the election of God, there are outstanding men of God and women of God who serve the Lord's purposes in their generation and who are called to do exploits for him. Man of God is a title of respect in the Bible. In many cultures in the Christian world, particularly I saw it in Africa and Asia, still make use of the honorary title, Man of God. Some are truly worthy of the title, others may take it upon themselves in a promotional manner, but of course the Lord knows and distinguishes. The designation Man of God is simple, yet incredibly profound. A man of God means on its face a person who is not his own. He belongs wholly to God. He's consecrated, one who has parted with his rights and preferences to give over his life wholly for God's cause. And what an honor to be described as belonging to God. But it's also a very grave responsibility that will bring harsher judgment if careless. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the title man of God is Ish Elohim or Ish Ha Elohim, and the honorific is applied 77 times in 71 verses to various leaders and prophets, at least 12 individuals. So let's take a brief look at some of them. First of all, of course, there's Moses. He's called a man of God in six Bible verses, beginning with Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. And Psalm 90 starts off with a prayer of Moses, the man of God. In Judges chapter 13, the angel of the Lord who appeared to Samson's mother is called a man of God. God chooses for special service men and women who live close to his heart and who are in total sympathy with his purposes and who are willing to speak out. The man who sternly and boldly rebuked Eli the priest in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is not named, but he's described as an Ish Elohim, a man of God, a seer, a prophet, who was not afraid to rebuke Eli the high priest. The man of God gave a scathing rebuke in the mode of a true biblical prophet, asking why the high priest had honored his apostate sons more than God, and he predicted the downfall of Eli's household. Instead, God raised up Samuel, the prophet, who is called a man of God in four different verses. As one of Israel's greatest judges, Samuel was instrumental in the transition from a loose confederation of Hebrew tribes to Israel's centralized monarchy. Samuel is mentioned by name in the Hall of Faith in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. And I find this so interesting that we learn in Jeremiah 15.1 how highly God regarded Samuel. Because in that verse, God gives a judgment saying that even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, he said my heart would not go out to this people. And the verse reminds me of God's mention of the luminaries also of Noah, Daniel, and Job in Ezekiel 14, 14 as intercessors 
who were able to deliver their own souls only by their righteousness. And in Jeremiah 15.1, both Moses and Samuel are named as having been conspicuous examples of the power of prayer and intercession. You see, Samuel was a quintessential man of God because he had learned to hear and to obey the voice of God from an early age. We learn that his mother Hannah had dedicated him to the Lord. And Samuel was called by God and walked with God, worshiping God. We have to consider that divine callings are all about relationships with God. Samuel spoke the truth and God did not allow any of Samuel's words to fall to the ground. That expression in the Hebrew means that God fulfilled everything that Samuel prophesied. However, and this is a troubling reality in life, the great Samuel had two sorry, good-for-nothing sons. They were named Joel, meaning in Hebrew, Yehovah is God, and Abiah, meaning my father is Yah. Their names were indicative of devout parents, but Samuel's sons did not walk in the Lord's ways. They turned aside, taking bribes and perverting justice. So here we see that the Bible plainly teaches us that character is not hereditary. The commentaries say that the sinner begets a sinner, but a saint does not necessarily beget a saint. You see, hereditary relationship exerts a powerful influence on a child's mind and disposition, but nothing but divine grace can bring about a change in a person's heart. And when children of a good man or a good woman turn out to be bad, the commentaries say that the cause may generally be traced to some defect in their training uh, through attention to other duties, being absent from the home, excessive strictness, or their association with evil companions, and so on and so forth. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us details of Samuel's household, but the most perfect education is limited in its power over character. Well, not only is David described in the Bible as a man of God, but he also has the wonderful distinction of being described as a man after God's own heart. This phrase was descriptive of David's character in contrast to the character of his predecessor, King Saul, who failed and disobeyed God. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Well, it means primarily to have a heart devoted to the honor of God, a heart totally dependent upon God for success, a heart that quickly repents at God's reproof on account of sin, a heart in sympathy with the people of God in their struggles, a wholehearted overall sincerity in relation to God and His plans. Well now, in 1 Kings 13, we have the fascinating and grisly account of the unnamed man of God from Judah who cried out against King Jeroboam of Israel and the altar. The rabbis identify him as Edo the seer who lived during the reigns of King Solomon and Solomon's descendants. So the unnamed man of God from Judah came to Bethel to prophesy against the pagan altar there. God was with him with outstanding signs and wonders in this chapter, 
but he had been given very definite marching orders by God to do his prophetic act and leave. He was forbidden to dine and have fellowship there in Bethel. So after the man of God departed, he was sidetracked, deceived, and ruined by the intervention of an old prophet who invited him back to dine. And when the man of God appealed to his marching orders, the old prophet answered deceitfully, making up a story that an angel of the Lord had instructed him to bring the man of God to his house for refreshments. And so tragically, the man of God fell for that, and he made the mistake of disobedience and not discerning a lie rather than following God's explicit instructions. I think of how Paul said in the book of Galatians, if I or an angel from heaven preach another gospel, let him be accursed. So we mustn't even be sidetracked by angels. Now, the man of God from Judah was doomed because of his disobedience, and he was killed by a lion on the road. And did you know 1 Corinthians 10:11 testifies that this incident and all scriptures are recorded for our benefit? That verse says, now these things happen unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. I recall a time when God gave me a very specific assignment, and he was very firm with his instructions. And it turned out, hallelujah, to be a very successful mission by the grace of God. But a minister with a big reputation whom I encountered along the way had advised me not to carry through with the assignment because it was perceived just to be too dangerous. But by the grace of God, I didn't listen to the ill advice. I carried through with my instructions from the Lord. And to this day, I rejoice in the exploits that God enabled us to do because in today's environment, the same assignment would have not been possible, humanly speaking. May we pray that we're not sidelined in these last days because there are many pitfalls and deceptions on every side. Now, among other men of God less known, both the prophets Elijah and Elisha are referred to numerous times in the Bible as men of God. And what about the New Testament? The expression man of God is used only twice in the New Testament. However, it takes one to know one because the phrase is applied to Timothy by an educated Hebraic thinker, the Apostle Paul himself. By referring to Timothy as a man of God, Paul was including Timothy in a rich Hebraic tradition. Paul certainly was the quintessential man of God, and he suffered everything willingly in his calling and commissioning by God. At one point, Paul wrote, I despaired even of life, but he said things happened to make him rely not on himself, but on the God who raises the dead. Paul knew the pressure of hard places makes us value life. As the great missionary evangelist A.B. Simpson once wrote, some people have a shallowness about them. Yet a man or a woman who has experienced great suffering is tender and gentle and understands from experience what suffering really means. So who qualifies today? There are many believers and confessors of faith, but not all believers qualify as an Ish Elohim in the biblical sense. What separates the men from the boys? Well, first of all, I'd say 
the man or woman of God, the Eshet Hayal, has a strong attachment to God, to say the least. And from time to time, God shares his secrets with them and gives them special assignments because they've proven themselves trustworthy. Think of Abraham. The Lord asked in Genesis 18:17, should I hide my plan from Abraham? Although the scriptures don't refer to Abraham as a man of God, he was called the friend of God. In James 2, 23, in the New Testament testifies of Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Deborah, the judge, the prophetess, was a woman of God in the sense that God was communicating his plans and thoughts to her, whereas General Barak in the book of Judges relied upon Deborah for direction due to her knowledge of God. By the way, the Talmud regards Deborah as one of the Hebrew Bible's seven female prophets, the other six being Sarah, Miriam, Hannah, Abigail, the wife of David, Huldah, and Esther. I've known some great women of God in my generation, and I've read about others in past generations who have been women after God's own heart, women such as Mary of Bethany, who sat at the feet of Jesus and who anointed his head with oil. She truly acted out the anointing of Messiah's kingship for time and eternity. What a visionary she was to do such a thing. No man, none of Jesus' male disciples thought to do it. And Anna, the prophetess in the New Testament, was certainly a woman of God because she served him in the temple with fastings and prayers, and she was able to recognize Messiah when he came. Although the Bible doesn't specifically call any female a woman of God, there are a number of prophetesses and important women throughout the Bible, and of course innumerable notable women in the history of the church. And I'd say it's impossible for a woman to be a genuine prophetess and not be a woman of God because a prophetess must know God intimately. She must know his voice, his ways, in order to speak for him. Mary, the mother of our Lord, was certainly a prophetess, as demonstrated in her words in the Magnificat. Besides being of sterling character, the man or woman of God has cultivated such an intimate relationship with the Father that he or she can be entrusted with the works that are upon Abba's heart in each generation. The man or woman of God is given insights through friendship with God into the secrets of his heart and therefore suffers a certain loneliness among human companions because God's ways and secrets just can't be shared with everybody and even if they could be, they wouldn't be understood nor appreciated. So a minister who doesn't understand God's covenant with Israel and his plans to save Israel in the last days, to my mind, can't be a genuine man or a woman of God for how can they know God and not know his heart concerning this all-consuming matter? Bible prophecy overflows concerning it. I've also learned from the Lord that God's man and God's woman, while having many acquaintances and admirers and also many detractors, just can't be buddies with everybody. So to be a close friend of a man or a woman of God is truly an honor. In a sense, any friend of a man or a woman of God also potentially becomes 
their protege through association. Moses was called the man of God and his protege, Joshua, became characteristically a man of God. And in the New Covenant, in Paul's letters to Timothy, characteristics and attributes of a man or a woman of God are unveiled. Let's consider what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 10 to 11. Paul wrote, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. In recent years, among teachers in the body of Messiah, there's been a lot of emphasis upon getting rich. But Paul observed that a man of God must not lust for money and material things and must avoid greed and covetousness. His pursuit should be after God's calling and directions, personal holiness, right standing with God and with man, as well as ever-increasing faith, love for the brethren, and personal growth in patience, humility, and meekness. I think a great example of a man of God concerning finances was Reese Howells, the Welsh coal miner who lived a life of intercession and missions and later served as an educator in Wales. His biography, The Intercessor by Norman Grubb, is my favorite book outside of the Bible. Reese Howells handled growing amounts of finances in his ministry as he founded a Bible college, but he had learned early in the school of the Holy Spirit how to account for every penny before God. Those who set a price on God's service are in danger of devaluing it. A characteristic of false prophets is their craving for money and riches. In the Bible, we see the profiteering prophet Balaam, Elisha's grasping servant Gehazi, and Judas, the Lord's treasurer, pilfered. And they were all sidetracked by greed. It's impossible for a person to be a man or a woman of God and love money. A second New Covenant reference to a man of God concerns his relationship with the scriptures. The passage is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where Paul said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I discovered the Strong Man of God website describes four characteristics of a true man of God. Number one, he accepts the roles God assigns him. He obeys God unto death. He relies on God for everything. And he trusts God for vindication. And I'd like to say that these four characteristics also describe a true woman of God. She accepts the roles that God assigns to her. She obeys God unto death. She relies on God for everything, and she trusts God for vindication because there are many critics out there. Furthermore, those four characteristics surely describe the life and ministry of Jesus. Number one, he accepted the role God assigned to him before the foundation of the earth. Before creation, Yeshua, that's his Hebrew name, humbly accepted his father's assignment to be the Lamb of God, as well as King Messiah. Secondly, he obeyed his father to his death, even the humiliating death on the cross. 
Three, he relied upon God for everything. He testified that he only did what he saw his father doing. And fourthly, he trusted God for vindication. He died by faith, trusting his father to vindicate him and his mission by raising him from the dead. And therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Amen. Well, to be a man or a woman of God is a high calling. I'd like to mention four additional important characteristics. Number one, he or she shuns sexual sins and affairs of the heart. A man or a woman of God is hallmarked by righteous behavior and sets the example that there are sins to shun at all costs. God's man and God's woman must flee from sexual immorality and youthful lusts. Secondly, a man or a woman of God is well acquainted with battles and accepts that spiritual warfare is a way of life. You see, God has many righteous causes in every generation for which he needs a spokesperson. And a man or a woman of God struggles against secularism, anti-Semitism, against apathy and apostasy in the churches and all sorts of manifestations of sin in society. Some of the bravest women of God that I know are involved in the battle to save life in the womb. Thirdly, he or she is often not appreciated on the home front. After all, Jesus said, a prophet is honored except in his town and among his family. And he was no exception. Among most believers, the man or woman of God is an alien. The author A.W. Tozer said it best. He searched for friends upon whose garments could be detected the smell of myrrh and aloe and cassia out of the ivory palaces. But finding few or none, like Mary of old, he keeps these things in his heart. And it's this very loneliness in his heart that throws him back upon God. His inability to find human companionship drives him to seek in God what he can't find in friendship elsewhere. And number four, here's an aspect that is unavoidable. A man or a woman of God will be a truly broken individual. The world at large doesn't comprehend brokenness, but the Lord has his own boot camp where a believer is trained to overcome obstacles and to overcome sin in their life and to move from faith to faith, victory to victory, and from glory to glory. In other words, to go from being a diamond in the rough to becoming a compassionate, meek, and polished, godly person, a diamond. Well, I want to encourage you in these days of deception and apostasy to ask God to reveal to you the truth about our Savior, Jesus. And God will. Because the Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may still be found. Amen. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I want to invite you to watch our free video library and to visit our website at exploits.tv. And I would enjoy connecting on social media. Don't forget also to download our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app so you can watch our videos on your phones or tablets anytime. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Maranatha, our Lord, come quickly. The grace of the Lord be with you 
I'm Christine Darg. Shalom.